listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. One of the books that I am probably the most familiar with from the Bible, one of the books that I probably spent the most time reading and studying and teaching from the Bible is the book called James. So in the last about 12 years, I can't tell you how many times I've taken a look at the book of James and, and, and I've taught it to teenagers, I've taught it to adults, I've taught it in small groups. But just recently, just in the last couple of years, something has hit me about the book of James. It's huge. Like, on the one hand, the book of James is really cool because it's probably one of the most quotable books of the Bible. There are so many little passages in James that just make you go, yeah, yeah, I need to memorize that. I need to write it down on a post-it note and stick it in my mirror. I need to make a... a, 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 a tweet about that. I need to tattoo that to my body. That's an awesome thing to say. But then there's a part of James that hit me recently, just in the last few years, that really struck a chord with me and made me say, I got to talk about that adventure. And this is it. The fact is that James, before he became a Christian, thought that Jesus was crazy. James was a skeptic. James was what you might call a non-believer. James was someone who said, you know what, I just, I don't I don't think that this Jesus thing is all seems to be cracked up to be. And so as we're looking at this, this new series that we're starting today called Wise Words from a Skeptic, I couldn't think of a better way to start than just saying, you know what, this is an awesome book from the Bible, but it's really cool if you happen to be somebody who says, you know what, I've always had a lot of questions about Christianity. I've always had a lot of questions about God, about Jesus. Why should I believe in this? So today we're starting a brand new series called Wise Words from a Skeptic. It's going to be a teaching series through the book of James. We're going to look at a guy who at one point said, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't believe he is who he says he is. All the way to the point that there's a book in the Bible named after him. That's the book of James. Over the next several weeks we're going to unpack this book. uh, And we're going to step into a lot of really practical teachings on life and how we can live and how we can make wise decisions and how we can conduct ourselves from day-to-day life. And so I want to jump right in. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, uh, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the book of James. Let me just say this real quick. Uh, of all the teaching series that we've done, our church is nine months old. We started back in September. And we've taken a variety of approaches to the Bible and teaching. This is a kind of a, a, new, a new thing for this group of people. It's going to be straight up a verse-by-verse study of a book of the Bible. And we won't be going every single verse because, you know, we could do that and it could take weeks and weeks and weeks. But we're going to spend about five weeks just taking a look at some specific books and say, how can that help us grow day to day? So because we're going to be doing that, I want to encourage you, if you do have a Bible, bring it to church with you for the next few weeks especially. Or if you've been using a Bible app on your phone, that's totally kosher. Bring your cell phones, your tablets, whatever. Pull that out. Uh, and we'll see. Actually, I'm going to check with the YMC, see if, see if we're allowed to get the Wi-Fi password to everybody. And you can get on. You can read your Bibles on your phones. I'm totally cool with that. If you don't have a Bible or maybe church and God and Christianity is kind of a new thing you're just stepping out into, you're like, the Sunday after 4th of July seems like a good time to go to church for the first time. And that's you. That's cool. We have Bibles uh, that you can have for free. We've got free ones that are scattered around underneath some of the chairs. There's also some in the back for free that you can grab. We want to make, every, make sure everyone's got a good version of the Bible they can read, and it's free. And if you don't have any of that with you this morning, totally cool. We're going to have all the verses that I'll be studying through on the screen behind me. Our goal is just to get to the first five verses of the book of James today. So can we do that? I want to jump right in. It's going to be pretty awesome. So we're going to look at James chapter 1, verse 1, and just see how the book begins. It starts like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. 
Greetings. It's a good way to start a book. This verse gives us a chance to learn a little bit about the background of this book. You can actually learn a lot about books of the Bible just by reading the first few verses. And then there's really great books called commentaries. Some of them are available online for free. A lot of them you can buy uh, through Amazon.com or just checking them out. There's, there's digital versions you can get. If you're interested in getting to some more Bible study yourself, shoot me an email, uh, chris at jointheventure.com. And I'd love to recommend you some great resources, especially on the book of James, that maybe you can check out a book yourself and, and read some more. So... The first verse of this book gives us this really rich picture, actually, of where we're coming from. Let me, let me show you what, what scholars have, have learned and what, what we can learn from this first verse. Uh, first of all, the book starts off with a pretty classic opener for a book. It says, James, servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. The book of James starts with a classic opening for what would have been a letter. In fact, the scholarly word for a letter in the Bible is an epistle. And when I say a letter, I mean it's like, Dear Sally, I'm coming to your house. Love, Fred, if you happen to know Sally and your name's Fred. And you write that letter. It's, it's a letter. It's an epistle. So that's kind of the word, epistle. And uh, we, we learned some things. There, there are lots of epistles or letters in the Bible. Some of them were written to very specific people. We get a couple of letters written to a guy named Timothy, for example. This guy named Paul writes some letters to a guy named Timothy. Dear Timothy, i got some stuff to tell you. The end, Paul, right? There's a guy named uh, Titus who has a letter written to him. Sometimes it's very specific people. Sometimes it's to a slightly broader audience. Uh, for example, you'll find people in the Bible writing letters to whole churches. Someone might write a letter to Venture Church and Dear Venture Church, here's some stuff to tell you. Love me, right? For example, we get the book of Romans. It's written to the church that's in Rome. There's this entire region called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And there's a book of the Bible called Galatians because Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. And they were supposed to pass it around and it was a way for them to learn. We get a letter written to the churches in, uh, in, in Corinth. A couple of those in the Bible. And First and Second Corinthians are those books. And so we got letters written to individuals. We got letters written to churches. The book of James is slightly different because it's written to a much broader audience. A general letter. A general epistle. And we learn in this letter who it goes to and who it's from, just from this first verse. I want to kind of just show you that in the first century when this letter was written, they had a style of writing. Like, we have a style of writing today. If you were going to write a letter, and if I was going to write a letter, my name's Chris, I would say, uh, and let's say I'm going to write it to uh, Brian. Brian is the guy who plays keys over here. He's the awesome keyboard player. So I might write a letter to Brian, and it would start like this. Dear Brian, right, because he's my dear, I guess. I guess that's how we address people. Or more likely, I'd say, to the most excellent and esteemed Brian, awesome Lord of the Keys, or something like that. I might say something along those lines to address the person who's going to receive the letter. And then we have the big section in the middle. you got your English majors. What's that section in the middle called? The body. Yes, the body. And it's not the John Mayer song. It's a wonderland. It's actually, it's the letter, and it's the body. It's what I want to say, right? It's the body. And then you have the farewell address, or the, what do you call that? The the salutation is the hello. It's the bye-bye, right? And I say, love Chris. So I've written Brian a letter, and the body would probably talk about, like, Doctor Who jokes and uh, comic book characters and all my questions about marine life because that's what me and Brian talk about because he's a super genius, okay? And so that's what we talk about. In the first century, they had a style of writing letters, too, and it would start much like this letter did first, except first the writer would address his own name. So that's why James says the very first thing. He says, James. A servant of God. He identifies himself. So we know that it is a letter, and it's from James. And then instead of waiting uh, to another point, or like we do at the very beginning, we say, Dear Brian, you go ahead at the beginning also and write who it's to. He says, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now we're going to talk about both of these kind of quickly. James 
and who are these 12 tribes? Like, how do you write a letter to 12 tribes? I don't understand what, this, what that is. So let's check it out. First, he says James. Let's talk about James for a second. Um, James is the author of this letter, and, and James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you kind of don't get that or what that's about, like, how does Jesus have a half-brother? I thought, I don't understand. It, it works basically like this. So Jesus is God in the flesh. We talk about this all the time. God said, I want to go down to earth. I want to help mankind find their way to my love. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be, God says, I'm going to become a man, a human person. And when he got down to earth, he took the form of a man. His name was Jesus. But he came as a baby, right? You might have heard that at Christmas time. You got little baby Jesus in the manger. That's the whole deal. That's God coming to earth as a human baby. And God allowed a human woman to become pregnant. Her name was what? Mary, right? So you got Mary, the mother of Jesus. You got the father of Jesus is who? God, mother and father. But here's the truth. Mary was married to Joseph, another guy. And they had other kids, other daughters and other sons. And those kids had Joseph as a biological father. So, got the same mom, Mary, different dad. Jesus is his father, the Holy Spirit. God comes down, makes his mom uh, conceive. They have Joseph as their dad. Same mom, different dad. What do we call that? Half-sibling, right? Half-brother. That's how James is the half-brother of Jesus. And it's pretty awesome when you look at uh, James's story because, like I said before, James did not believe that Jesus was this divine son of God, as they called it. He didn't get it. If you, if you look, uh, I just want to show you in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Uh, this is the first time we kind of meet James, one of the first times. It says, isn't this the carpenter's son, talking about Jesus? Isn't his name, his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, that's our guy, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And there were other siblings too, we understand. And so that's where we first meet James. So James is listed as a brother. Well, that's James. And, and we see this several times throughout the Bible. But one really interesting fact that I want to really kind of hone in on for just a second is the fact that as James grew up with Jesus, he was skeptical that Jesus was who he said he was. We read, for example, in John chapter 7, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And there's other times where we see the family being kind of accosted by some of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus is, just says, look, these are not my mother and my brother. They, they, they don't believe in me. On one hand, I, I kind of understand where James is coming from. But on the other hand, I wonder, didn't, didn't, Moses, didn't uh, Joseph and Mary, like, didn't they, didn't they tell James and the other siblings, like, this is Jesus, he's the son of God. Like, you ever had, like, a sibling that just was better at everything than you? Imagine if your brother was Jesus. Like, why can't you be more like Jesus, you know? Why can't you, he makes better grades, he's so nice to the lady, the old lady next door. Like, can't you just be more like Jesus? I don't know if that's maybe what Jesus and James kind of grew up in. But on the other hand, I really don't blame James for not believing that Jesus was the Son of God. I've got a brother named Jason. Some of you know my brother Jason. He's absolutely insane. He's, he's one of the funniest guys that I know. He's always pulling pranks and jokes. And I could just imagine if my brother came up to me one day, and he's like, hey, Chris, I got really good news. What? I'm the Son of God. Okay, right. And I would just laugh, and I would walk away. Because he's always saying stuff like that. If your sibling came up to you and was like, listen, I, uh, I'm the salvation of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm actually God in the flesh. And I'm going to save all of mankind by just saving them with my own life. And what? Yeah. Imagine then if your sibling then leaves home for a few months, right? And he's gathering some followers. And you hear the rumors like, 
you heard Jesus had 5,000 people he was preaching to the other day, and everybody's listening to everything he says. And then one day, all of his disciples just show up at your, uh, in, your, in your town. And some of them come up to you, and you're like, are you, are you the brother of Jesus? And you're James, right? And you go, what did he tell you? Did he tell you he was the son of God? Yeah, he said he got, and I just imagine James walking up to Jesus at some point going, Jesus, listen, dude, you got to stop, man. This is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. People are really believing you. You can't keep saying this kind of stuff. Now, I'm kind of reading between the lines here. We don't have any of this in the Bible. We don't know for sure that that, but I just imagine that if my brother came to me and said, I'm the son of God, I'm the salvation of mankind, I would be a little bit skeptical. And James was. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling or, or, or someone that you grew up with, someone that you went to high school with, or someone that you work with that you've known for years, what would it take for you to believe that they were God in the flesh? Just for real. Like, this isn't speculation. Like, seriously, someone comes to you, you would probably think they were crazy. You would be skeptical of them, to say the very least. What would it take? Something happens to James. Between the time when he's growing up with Jesus as his brother and, and, and the time when he writes this book of the Bible. And i, I got to tell you, I've got an opinion about what I think it was. And so here's how it goes down. So Jesus lives his whole life and he does this ministry and there's thousands of people that believe in him and they're willing to give their life for him. I just imagine James taking it all in. And he sees and he hears about some of the miracles Jesus does and he's just like, I just, but that's, but it's Jesus. Like I've seen him my whole life. And then Jesus is executed. He's crucified, right? That's the basic story of Jesus. And, and I imagine that James is probably right there with his mom, Mary, crying. Because Jesus is, is dead now. And I just imagine this might have been his final moment of skepticism. He's like, yeah, well, at least that's over, right? He's gone. But then something happens. See, after Jesus died... He raises from the dead. By his own power, because he is God in the flesh, he raises from the dead. And he begins to appear to people, many of them skeptical people, like this one guy named Paul. Paul was a skeptic. Paul was a guy who said, you know what, Christianity is leading our religion, the Jewish religion, astray. And I got nothing to do with this. So Paul is, he's, says he's breathing out murderous threats against the Jews. He's literally going door to door, finding Jewish people who have become Christians and dragging them into the yard and saying, I want you to renounce this Jesus guy or we're going to have to kill you. I'm sorry, it's just the way it's going to have to be. This is Paul. Jesus begins to appear to people as a risen man. And he says, I'm alive. I am the son of God. And Paul writes about this. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, this is super important, so please listen. He says, I need you to know that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That happened. He died. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. That's what the prophecies said was going to happen, and it happened. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for a guy named Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. That's the rest of the followers of Jesus, the closest followers. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul's like, look, some of these people are still alive, and they're not crazy. Go ask them. Go ask them what they saw, okay? Go do some homework. Some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died since then. But some of them are still alive, the 500. And then verse 7 says, and then he appeared to James. James, that's our guy. 
I think something happened to James from the time that he was a skeptic to the time that he wrote the letter that bears his names, and I think it was this. I think Jesus shows up and said, hey, brother, listen, I understand that you kind of doubted in me there. I get it. But I want you to know I'm the real deal. And so for the rest of this series, we're going to be looking at words of wisdom from a former skeptic. Someone who said, I mean, I'm, I am sure without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. In fact, James undergoes a huge transformation after this. You know what James does after this? James becomes the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. Like he's like, it might be calling him like the pastor of that church. And all the people around him, the Jewish people who have become Christians, they look to James for leadership. And James can go, you know what? I used to not believe in this too, but I do now. Because I've seen Jesus raised from the dead. And they say, tell me about it. And he tells them, and it convicts them time after time after time again. Not only that. He becomes a leader among the churches outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of like the hub of where Christianity began. But churches around the area, they've got questions. What do they do? They write letters to James. And like, James, uh, what, what do you think we should do? And so James sends them back replies. This is what I think you should do. We have some evidence of that in the book of Acts. It's really cool. And not only that, James was so convinced that his brother, his half-brother, Jesus, was the Son of God and was the Messiah and was the Savior of the world that eventually he's willing to give his own life for that fact. The Bible says that he was killed by the sword. He was executed like a common criminal. Why? Because he was convinced that without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was who he said he was. And so that's when we look in James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author. And that's who we're talking about this, this next couple of weeks. Spent a lot of time on him today. We won't talk about him a lot more in the next couple of weeks. But I want you to really grasp the idea of who this guy is. Let's take a look at the second half of verse 1. It says, to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations, greetings, to the 12 tribes. So we know who James is, but who are these 12 tribes? It's a pretty short answer to that. Uh, if, if you were a Jewish person, you could trace your lineage back to one of 12 brothers. There was an original guy named Abraham, and then he had a son, and then he had a son, and then that guy had 12 sons, and then those 12 men become the foundation of who the nation of Israel is. And then if you were a Jewish person, you could trace your lineage back to one of those 12 original tribes. And so Paul is saying, or James is saying, I'm writing this letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. If there's this time in, in Jewish history, actually in world history, that was a pretty big deal. I want to teach you a Greek word. Everybody say this word. The word is diaspora. Say diaspora. Diaspora. The word diaspora means uh, a dispersion or a scattering. See, what happens is a lot of Jewish people, they saw Jesus' miracles. They heard things from guys like James and, and Peter and, and Andrew and John, the followers of Jesus. And they said, you know what? I, I believe that this guy is from God and I'm going to follow him. They were Jewish people. They became Christians. But then the Jewish people who didn't become Christians, they didn't like that. And they said, you know what? You are being blasphemous against our God. You, you, you are taking authority away from God. You're saying this guy who is not God is God, and we can't have that. And so the Jewish people begin to persecute their fellow, their fellow countrymen, the other Jews who become Christians. They, they start to persecute them literally like, like Paul, dragging them out of their house, trying to kill them. It's a dangerous time. And so what happens? The Jewish Christians disperse. Diaspora, they scatter, they go all over the place. Like, this is crazy. I'm not going to stand here and get beat up when I could go to another city and survive. I'm going to go. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell other people about Jesus. So that's what they do. So James writes this letter and he says, I'm writing this to the 12 tribes who are scattered among the nations. 
Those people who have put their faith in Jesus but have said, I ain't going to stick it out in Jerusalem because it's just dangerous here. I'm going to go take this good news about God's love somewhere else. And so they do. They're scattered. It's called the diaspora. It's a major time in Jewish history. In fact, a major time in world history. And as you read kind of scholarly works about the Bible, that's kind of a peg date, the diaspora. Kind of a big deal. And so that's who the Jews are. That's, that's who the 12 tribes are. And here we are. Ready? We made it through verse 1, all right? Verse 1. Now, the rest of the verses that we're going to study today aren't quite as heady as that. They're a little bit more hearty than that. But knowing who James is and knowing who the 12 tribes are, the fact that they're living in persecution and it's a really rough time for them really sets up these next four verses. It's huge. And so if you've got your Bible with you or you're taking some notes this morning, this is the stuff I want you to hone in on because this is what's really going to help you throughout the rest of this week and help you through the rest of your life as you look at what advice James has. For the tribes scattered among the nations. And by the way, the message applies to us too. So we're going to check into verse 2, right? Verses 2 through 4. Here we go. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you, so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So as James' letter begins, he first addresses this elephant in the room. He's like, look, I know times are hard for you guys. Remember the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations? Times are hard. I know that some of you are fearing for your very life because your fellow countrymen, fellow countrymen are trying to take you out. I got some advice for you. And so he starts off, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. He says, listen, I know things have gotten rough. And you're facing unbearable trials in your life. I know it's downright terrible. But let me suggest that you take a look at life from a different vantage point. You could either sit in the middle of this mess and you could pout and you could cross your arms and you could say, oh, life is terrible, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. Or you could rearrange your brain and you could see it as an opportunity. So he says, consider it pure joy. And I just want to step back and be like, What? Consider it pure joy when I face terrible things. So when life is hard, look, if I was writing this book, honestly, it might be bad, but I'd be like, all right, consider it a pure pain in the butt when life gets hard. Like, that's, that's okay. You can do that because life is hard, and you should just cry about it. And, I mean, that's the way I feel when life goes wrong, and I can't get the things that I want or have things. That I want. Sometimes I just want to sit back and go, man, I don't want to consider it joy. I want to consider it inconvenient. I want to consider it painful. But no, read it again. It says consider it pure joy when you face trials. And as crazy as it sounds, I found this to be really great advice and amazingly true. Here's the deal. The New Testament writers, the guys who wrote the New Testament of the Bible, they do a really crazy thing with the word joy. Like when I talk about joy and I ask you to give me kind of like a, a synonym for joy or, or like what, what, how, how, would, how would you define joy? That song that the band did this morning, the happy song, Cause I'm happy, and then you're clapping along because, you know, you got a room without a roof or something, and it's just awesome. And like that, that's the way people want to define joy. Joy is awesome in the moment. Illustration. When I have a donut, a donut, I have joy, right? When I have a cheeseburger, I have joy, right? Joy can be circumstantial. I'm happy. I step on a rusty nail, joy gone, right? Or I realize my donut is finished, joy gone. 
It's circumstantial, right? And so often we equate joy with happiness or joy with pleasure. And the New Testament writers do a really crazy thing that other ancient writers didn't do. In fact, when you look at um, other ancient Greek writers, these guys wrote in Greek. That was the New Testament. The Bible was written in, in Greek. When you look at some of the other writers, you got Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. They, they talk a lot of philosophy about our state of life, and they talk about joy a lot. And when you read, I, I didn't read all those original works because I don't have access to them, but I've read works that other people have read those works, and they've done the analysis. And when you check out the way they treat the word joy, check it out. They, they take the word joy, and they make it completely interchangeable with the word pleasure. Yeah, if you've you got a donut, you have joy. you got a donut, you have pleasure. Step on a rusty nail, joy gone. And that's how they address it. The New Testament, and that's how we address it in, in, in modern language too, right? I mean, it's, I'm joyful. It's, it's 4th of July, woo, fireworks. We have joy. Go America, Team USA. We can do this, right? The New Testament writers take this crazy twist, and they say this. Joy is not always about being happy right now. Let that soak in, because that's really kind of a heavy statement. But that joy is not always about being happy right now. The way that the New Testament writers in the Bible talk about joy, they, they kind of assert that happiness and pleasure are circumstantial. But joy, like the type of joy that James is talking about, is deeper than mere circumstance. Joy is about being able to find a reason to be glad. Joy is tied to something beyond your circumstance. It's like I'm sitting in traffic, and I'm moving at one mile per hour, and the, the jerk in front of me can't use his turn signal, and, and the lady behind me is like doing her makeup, and I keep on being scared she's going to run into my car, and the guy beside me is listening to a song that I don't like at very high decibels, right? And I'm miserable, and I'm in traffic, but I find joy. How? Well, I know that in just a few minutes I'm going to be home with my family. You see that? Like that's, that's being able to find joy beyond your circumstances, to be able to look at where you are and say, what can it be a reason that I can find gladness right now? And only the New Testament writers in the Bible do that with this word. It's crazy, but that's what James says. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. You look at this guy, Paul. I said he wrote a lot of letters to a lot of churches around the ancient world. But Paul, at one point in his life, he is in prison. He's literally in chains. And when we look at him in the book of Philippians, it's a letter that was written to the church at Philippi. Okay, and we look at James, uh, Paul. He's literally in chains because of his faith in Jesus. And we find out that eventually he's going to have a death sentence on his life. That's what ultimately happens to Paul. He's eventually executed. And so while he's in this miserable situation, he's chained up, he's waiting for a trial, he's tri and eventually he's going to die from it, he writes this book, Philippians. The book of Philippians is full of the concept of Christian joy. In fact, something like 14 times throughout the book of Philippians, Paul uses some form of the word joy or rejoice. Check out this verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, while he's in the middle of prison, he's chained up, he can't get out of this house, he's awaiting trial, it's eventually going to be his death sentence. This is what he writes. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I'm going to tell you what, if I'm Paul and I'm sitting in this, this jail, which actually we believe it probably was more like a, like a house arrest where he just couldn't go anywhere, but he is a prisoner. I, I'm not thinking about writing rejoice in the Lord always. If I'm writing a letter to somebody, it's like, Please send fruitcake with a file in it. Like, that's what my letter's going to say. Or, dear friends, I'm miserable. The food is terrible, and this guy that I'm chained to has bad body odor. Like, that's what I'm writing about. What does Paul write about? Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And when you read that verse, you think, well, maybe he's at like a carnival. Like, man, it sounds like maybe he was at the 4th of July fireworks. Maybe he was having this great time and he wrote this letter. But no, he's got this idea of Christian joy because he says, you know, joy is not based on my circumstances. Joy is being able to look beyond my circumstances and find something to be glad in. It's a principle that the Bible talks about called hope. There is something worth fighting through. And so James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Let's look at the rest of the verse. Life's trials come along without warning, don't they? Like how many of you plan to break down in the rain and have a flat tire? No one plans for that. It just happens. And that's what we say. We say life happens, or that's the way it goes. Or we say that's life, right? That's life. It's the hard stuff that comes out without being expected. Maybe your trials in your life have come from someone else's bad decisions. Like you're still kind of reeling from a bad decision your parents made, or maybe you made a bad decision that you're still dealing with the consequences. But you know what we do? We say, that's life. That's life. That's the way it goes, right? Life happens. We just had this hurricane this past weekend. Arthur. I was talking to Arthur this, this past week. This is Arthur in the back. And I was like, dude, Arthur, why'd you have to be so wrong to the people of North Carolina when you came through with your hurricane? Like, we got it pretty good in Wilmington. My brother lives up in the Outer Banks, and they got a little, little rougher. And, but you know what? Like, a hurricane, there's no stopping that. I have no control over a hurricane. That's a circumstance. It's not because I did anything wrong or the city of Wilmington did anything wrong, but people got trees on their house. And so how do I find joy in that? How do I look beyond the circumstances? Life comes at us from every angle. I'm reminded of one of my best friends who they recently had their third child and he was born with, with a pretty, pretty serious uh, special needs situation. And they realized that unlike their other two kids, this is a kid that's going to live with them for the rest of their life and that's, that's not what you plan for. We don't plan for the trials in our life but we still have to live with them. That's life. And so, if you're like me, you want to kind of get on your knees a little bit and cry out to God like, okay, God, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this broken down car? What am I supposed to do with this broken down relationship? What am I supposed to do with this broken down job? What am I supposed to do with this broken down life? What am I supposed to do with that? Like, don't you have a magic potion or some fairy dust that can help me out, God? Like, for real, because this is kind of miserable. Can you help me out? And yes, I believe that God does intervene when we pray. I believe that God has amazing power through prayer. But I think what James is teaching us is that when life happens, don't just curl up and die. Don't get in the fetal position and suck your thumb and say, I quit. He says, consider it pure joy. Why? He explains it in the rest of the verse. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? You guys see on the screen. What does it produce? Perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance. Trial leads to perseverance. Our society doesn't put a whole lot of stock in perseverance. We are the just do it society. We are the have it your way society, right? And when things get tough, we bail. Like, I'm out. I quit. We do it with jobs. We do it with marriages. We do it with relationships. We do it with neighborhoods we don't like living in. We do it with school systems. We do it with our government. We just, psh, I'm done. I quit. We're not a perseverance society. Lots of garages are filled with gently used golf clubs and surfboards and bikes and ab rollers and solar flexes and treadmills and half-assembled muscle cars because we just quit stuff. Many of your cabinets are filled with like evidence of like six diet programs, right? It didn't work for me. I'm going to do the uh, North Beach diet this time because the South Beach diet just wasn't for me. 
I'm doing the all cabbage, lettuce, and uh, no socks diet for three weeks. You know, that's because we are, we, perseverance is not a hallmark of our society. It's not something we do. We're not great stick-to-it kind of people. Um, I wanted to make sure I had a good definition for perseverance, so I Googled it. That's what you should always do when you don't know what to do. So this is what Google taught me. Perseverance is sticking with something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Let me say that again. Perseverance is sticking with something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Like, we want answers now. We want success now. I want my degree now. I want my raise now. I want my promotion now. I want this awesome marriage, this awesome relationship now. And if I can't get it now, I'm just going to move on to the next thing. We're not great perseverers Perseverance builds character in us. I think that Jesus probably set the bar on this. Like, like I talked a minute ago about Jesus' crucifixion. He was executed, and if you ever think for a second that that was something that's like, well, he was the son of God, so it probably wasn't that bad. Now, the Bible teaches that he was fully human when he went through his execution. He was able to feel the pain. He was able to see the, the pain in his mother's eyes and his friends as they mourned over him. And he had a lot of power, too. And he could have at any second walked away from that. But Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us something about Jesus' perseverance. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy. said, what? There's that word again, joy. Because joy isn't necessarily about finding pleasure in your circumstance. It's being able to look beyond your circumstance and find something to have hope in. Hebrews says that it was joy that was set before him. Jesus knew that if he could stick it out, it would be worth it. So he let perseverance finish its work so that his work could be made complete. And I'm really glad he did. Aren't you? Like, I'm super glad that Jesus said, I'm going to stick this out. I'm going to do the whole crucifixion thing because of what it will do for all of mankind. And now he can connect all of us with the love of God through his sacrifice. James says trials produce perseverance. And we're like, I get that, right? You don't go to the gym expecting to get ripped in a week. It's going to take weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years, and it's going to take perseverance, right? So James says, trials produce perseverance. And when perseverance finishes its work, we'll be made mature and complete. And that's the reason we can have joy. We can consider our trials and the testing of our faith pure joy because each thing we do in life builds us into a stronger and better and more faithful you. And it makes you more able to deal with the next thing that comes up. You guys who are a little older, have a little more gray hair on your head, you know this, right? It wasn't easy always, and it probably still easy, but you look back and go, well, I went through that, it made me stronger for this. I went through that, it made me more faithful for this. I went through that, it made me more prepared for this. And I went through that, and now I can help them, because they're going through it now. And on the other side of that trial is a wiser and stronger you and me. And you may not have control over everything that happens, Guys, listen, you can control where you put your hope. You can. And that choice can bring you joy in the hardest of times. And that's what James is teaching to these people who are living in the dispersion. They're being persecuted for their faith. Things are hard. He says, consider it pure joy because your joy leads to a growth in your faith. And your faith leads to perseverance. And your perseverance, when it finishes its work in you, makes you mature and complete. And so we've marked out the first four verses of James. We've only got one left, okay? And this is kind of how we're going to wrap up today. See, totally different teaching style this week. Not a lot of stories, not a lot of things. But I see you guys nodding your heads and taking notes. I hope this is something good for you. We've done first four verses. I want to jump into verse five because it really wraps up the whole thought this morning. 
Verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Hold that thought. Just keep, just keep that verse on the screen. We'll be right back to it. So every Christmas, I try to take my kids to a nursing home, like a retirement community, uh, to sing Christmas carols and just spend some time doing some good old-fashioned loving people who need some love. Like, have you ever done that? I love going to nursing homes and just spending time with the residents there. And I love the joy in their eyes when you walk through the door, especially when you bring little cute kids in. They're like, oh, come and sit on my lap. And then they forget that you were there, and then you get to sit on their lap again. And then it's like, it's a cycle, and they're joyful over and over again. And it's wonderful. And I love the joy that's in there. But you know what my favorite part is? I love just sitting and listening to them talk and asking them questions about when they were a kid. You, you won't have your mind blown. Just go sit and talk to someone who's like 80 or 90 years old and just ask them to tell them the story of their life. Like this is the question I'll ask. So what's your story? And they'll take it a thousand different ways and they'll just talk and talk and talk. I love to hear all the things they've been through. So many of them have been some really, through some really bad times. Many of them lived through the world wars. Some of them remember a time when there weren't planes that you could fly on easily. It's like, we had kites and we thought that was cool. You know, we were kicking the can for a game. And like, you listen to this and you listen to the life that they lived. Now there's a, there's a, a word we use for these people. It might be old, but that's not the respectful word. The word that we can use for these people is wise. It's wise. Why? I mean, because they've been there. They've done that. When you're going through a tough time in your life, who do you call? You don't call like your kid brother. Like, hey, Bobby, hey, how's seventh grade? Listen, I'm having some problem paying my uh, rent. What do you think I should do? I don't know. I'm playing black ops right now. You know, like, we, who do we ask for, for guidance and wisdom? People who have been there and done that. So if you know of a friend who's been through what you're going through, you're going to call them because they've been there and they've done that. We call them wise. And the reason I tell this story is because I think it completely connects James's thoughts between, he's like, when you deal with trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy because it builds perseverance and you can get through it and it's going to make it worth it. And then he says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. Because wisdom is gained through living. And James says, when life happens, consider it pure joy. Why? Well, because, because trials teach us about perseverance. So what? Well, Perseverance, when its work is done, makes us mature and complete. And it makes us who we are. It brings us a state of wisdom and experience that we would have never had before. In fact, trials are a regular part of life. And I think James is reminding us that just because life happens doesn't mean we need to shut down. In fact, maybe like if you've been tracking with me this morning and there's just like one little nugget of thing that you need to hear, I want you to hear this. If you're going through something hard right now, don't shut down. Don't give up. Because if you can start to set your mind and your heart on the things of God, you can find hope. You can find peace. And you will be, you will be made complete through it. It'll make you who you were meant to be. I'll tell you what, when you're dealing with problems, there's probably nothing better to have on your side as a weapon than wisdom. We go to some crazy places for wisdom, don't we? Like, we just look for, like, answers.com, looking for wisdom. Like, I love watching people who really, they're thinking about buying a car. Like, I just don't know what I should do. And so then they go ask a car dealer, like a car salesman, what do you think I should do? And they're like, well, I think you need this new sports car. Because <laughs> let's go talk to my manager about that. No, no offense to car dealers, but they're not there to give you wisdom. They're there to sell you a car. And they're going to try to get you a good deal on one. But if you want to look for wisdom in something, don't, don't crowdsource it to Facebook. 
Talk to somebody who's been through it. And even more so, ask God for the wisdom to deal with it. James 1.5 says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. And he gives it generally to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The most prosperous thing that you could ask for from God is, is not a new car and not a bigger paycheck and not a happier marriage, but wisdom. The ability to discern. The ability to know what's good and what's best. Wisdom is even, wisdom is hard to find. It's even harder to discern. Which is why I think James lays this with this profoundly simple advice. When you're dealing with trials, when you're dealing with life, pray for wisdom. Seek wisdom. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Wisdom is such a great goal in life. To be wise is to be prepared for whatever comes your way. I've heard it said that wisdom is knowing what you do know as well as knowing what you don't know. That's what wisdom is. And being able to move forward accordingly. And James' advice here is solid. And as you face times of trial and uncertainty and pain and confusion, instead of praying for the silver bullet that can fix it all, which that's what we all wish could happen, I want to encourage you guys like James does. Pray for wisdom. And seek wisdom. And seek wise, godly counsel. Because wisdom is the difference between giving a man a fish and teaching a man to fish. I'm going to talk about that several times throughout this series. But you, you hear that little analogy? When you give someone a fish, it feeds them for a day. But when you teach them how to fish, it'll feed them for a lifetime. And sometimes we go through life and our trials and our problems, and we just want somebody to just knock them off one at a time for us. Okay, okay, here's my new problem. Give me some advice. Okay, here's my problem. Give me some new advice. Okay, here's my problem. Give me some new advice. That's giving a man a fish. But if your goal is to say, I want to gain wisdom, I want to gain the ability to discern for myself what is best. You'll be able to survive for a lifetime. And it's James's words. Some people call uh, this verse kind of the defining verse of the book of James. Ask God for wisdom, and he gives it generously. The book of James is packed full of so much useful information. It's amazing, and it will change your life. If you take some of these things, you commit them to memory. Like if you take James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and you memorize them, consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For don't you know that the testing of your face, uh, it produces perseverance, and perseverance, when its work is through, will create in you completeness and maturity. Like if you can take that verse and commit it to memory, I and mean, you'll be able to pull that out of your bag of tricks every time life is crumbling around you. And what I love is that we learn it from a guy who at one time had no faith in Jesus. As we wrap up today, I'm reminded of what it takes to really put our faith in God. Like, sometimes we, we, we get this warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what we want. And we're like, hey, I'm just going to come to church enough times until I get the warm, fuzzy feelings. And sometimes I come and I got it. And that means God was there. And sometimes I come to church and I, I don't got it. And that means God probably wasn't there that day. He probably was like at another church visiting that day because he wasn't there for me and it wasn't for me. James comes from a different perspective and he says, listen, I, I want you to think about how you act. I want to think about what you do. And I want you to ask yourself, are you lining yourself up with what God wants for your life? Are you running through life looking for the silver bullet to deal with each circumstance as it comes? Consider it pure joy when we face trials because God is doing something. He's doing something in your life. He's doing something to perfect you and make you more complete. He's doing us to build this community, to build this family. And guys, as we continue to grow and learn as a church through the book of James and through the other things that we're going to study throughout the summer, 
I believe that God has got something for us. And here's the message that he might have for you right now. Maybe you're someone who is skeptical of God and church and Christianity. And you're like, look, man, I'm not into that lovey-dovey, fluffy stuff. Like, that's just not me. Like, you know what? I realize you can pull somebody's heartstrings and make them do lots of things. I, I want you to take a look at James and the way that he approaches God. He says, look, let, let's just be logical. Let's be wise. And let's seek joy beyond our circumstances for a God who can live us, give us a life worth living. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, your words of wisdom and your servant, James. Uh, I praise you for uh, just giving me the opportunity to just share some of this stuff. And um, I'll be honest, like sometimes when I teach like this, it's not as comfortable for me because I feel like I'm trying to be a professor in a college classroom. But God, you're the great teacher and the great professor, and you give us all the truth that we need. And so my prayer this morning is that the word of, of James will come through clearly to our hearts and, and they'll change us and they'll move us and they'll make us into who you have as planned to be. Thank you for men like James and Paul who overcome their skepticism and even probably questions that they still couldn't quite answer about you to put faith in you. And I pray this morning that as we have fears and skepticisms, we can step back from that long enough to go, yeah, I got questions, but God loves me. And I'm going to start there as a foundation. I'm going to move forward. Lord, we love you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.